You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Election College, Episode 203. Richard Mentor Johnson. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Jason, we've been kind of loosely doing a little series of vice presidents who never became presidents. And as we're trucking along here, the the next one up is Richard Mentor Johnson. And I know you're all thinking, guys, we know everything there is to know about Richard Mentor Johnson. Do we really need an episode? And yes, we do, because I know we're going to let you guys off the hook, but Jason and I knew almost nothing about him. Yeah. Can you believe it? Here he is. He's probably one of the most influential politicians in the early days of Kentucky. And here I am living in Kentucky, grew up here, didn't learn anything about this guy. And I'm sure in all the other states, they're probably like, hey, there's Kentucky, Richard Mentor Johnson. He's a pretty big deal. I don't know if that's the case. Yeah. (laughs) So let's start at the beginning, which... Always seems to be the logical place to start. Richard Mentor Johnson. I think, by the way, his middle name is really cool. Mentor. I, I don't know that it means anything that we're you know, used to hearing the word mentor associated with, but it still sounds cool. Richard Mentor yeah. Johnson was born in 1780, and he was right in the middle of all his brothers and sisters. There were 11 children in the family, and he was the fifth. And his dad was already into politics. He was a representative in uh, Virginia for the House of Burgess. And his mother comes from a family that's, well, pretty well off. They're connected in a lot of different ways, and that a lot of times has some political sway about it as well. So he comes from a political family background, for sure. So those of you who are familiar with Kentucky, they lived in Fayette County, and the county was quite a bit larger back then area wise um so they lived in this newly founded settlement called beargrass which is totally a cool kentucky name beargrass not bluegrass <laughs> and that was near uh, louisville or louisville or louisville it, that's the proper way to say it louisville by the way and um the johnsons uh, were out there with a large group of indigenous people, and they struggled uh, as many uh, pioneers and settlers did at the time. Um, thousands more people came out with the Johnsons, and there, by the time the year 1800 came, there were 324,000 white people living in the new state of Kentucky. In 1782, the Johnsons moved to the Lexington area, And 
Johnson's mom was considered to be a heroic woman because she did some really cool things during Simon Gertie's raid on Bryan Station in 1782. According to legend, uh, Gertie's forces surrounded the fort and the occupants discovered that they had almost no water inside. And so there were Indians outside of the fort and Johnson's mom was like, they're not going to do anything to women. So we're going to go out and get some water. And they did. (laughs) And much to the disapproval of the men and uh, the people had water and mom is a hero. So Richard Johnson ends up waiting until he was about 15 to start any kind of formal education. Uh, There weren't a whole lot of schools out there where they were. And he ends up going through school and then studying law. Surprise, Jason. He's a legal apprentice. I know that's amazing. Uh, That's crazy. Yeah. So he gets drawn into politics just like his dad, uh, but he gets admitted into the bar in 1802 and opens up a law office. Uh, He also was a kind of a businessman. He had a retail store and did a couple um, business ventures with his brothers. Uh, But he would oftentimes, when he was practicing law, do stuff pro bono, uh, help people who were disabled veterans, some widows, etc., just so that he could, you know, kind of practice his his law. Johnson, pretty strong character. Probably took after his mom and (laughs) sometimes... When two personalities are similar, there is conflict in the home, and it is alleged and probably true that when Johnson was 16 years old, he was engaged, but mom did not like the young lady, and the marriage never happened, and Johnson, the younger, was like, mom, I will never forgive you, and... um some family tension, probably not a good situation around the Thanksgiving table. Um, But what did come out of that engagement was a daughter and her name was Celia. And she was raised by the Johnson family. And um, interestingly enough, her husband served in Johnson's regiment at the battle of the Thames later on. Crazy. So after Richard Johnson's father dies he inherits a slave. Uh, Her name was Julia Chin, and she was one-eighth African and seven-eighths European. And it's interesting because she was born into slavery, uh, but she kind of grew up around Richard Johnson because she was a slave in that household. And so you can imagine they were probably uh, as, as friendly or as close as kids who are owner and slave can be, and they end up um, getting into a relationship of sorts. And it's kind of hard to know uh, where the romantic relationship begins and where it ends and where the slave relationship ends and everything. But Johnson, for by all accounts, treated her kind of well. Uh, he treated her like his wife, basically. And um, she wasn't ever officially his wife. It was kind of more of a common law thing. Uh, but they were very interested and very committed, it seems, to each other. And uh, started a multiracial family, which, as you are well aware, in this time period, late 1700s, early 1800s, is not culturally normal. 
basically. Uh, again, because she was a slave, they weren't able to get married, um, but he trusted her to do everything, and, and it seems as if he loved her as his wife. Yeah, very brave of Richard Mentor Johnson to be like, hey, this is my bride, and he referred to her as that, and he's kind of like, what now, people? Because uh, it was well known that a lot of these politicians, especially who owned slaves, did have some sort of relation with women. And you could say that that was by the man's um, expressing dominance over the slave, or maybe it was consensual. But Richard Minter Johnson was like, no, this is, this is my wife. And I can't imagine how unpopular that would have made him among some of his peers, uh, as well as constituents. And I guess we'll see more about that later on. Yeah, and they did have a couple of daughters. And we're going to skip ahead for just a second here. Uh, they have two daughters together. And so mom dies, and then later dad dies. And because they were technically considered illegitimate, because the two had never married, uh, the courts would not give the children anything from Johnson's estate. And so basically, they didn't get any of the monetary proceeds, they didn't get any of the physical proceeds, because they didn't have, technically, he wasn't their father, according to the state. So it went ended up going to other relatives of his. But man, that kind of stinks. Yeah. So Johnson, not totally off the hook on the whole slavery issue, because he still used that institution uh, horribly. Uh, after his common-law wife dies, he begins a relationship with another family slave, and then she leaves him for another man, and then he sells her at auction. And then after that, he began another relationship uh, with her sister, who was also a slave. So not the great emancipator, not the uh, kind of character that you probably would approve of at all. Anyway, back to uh, Johnson's political career. He enters politics in 1804. He's elected to represent Scott County in the Kentucky House of Representatives at the age of 23. Yeah, so Jason, you just mentioned a really important thing there. He gets in when he was 23, but the age is actually 24 that you have to be before you can uh, be a member of the House of Representatives. But he's super popular, and no one even raises the question of whether or not he is allowed to hold the office. So that's kind of bizarre, for sure. And then in 1806, he gets elected to the House of Representatives for the United States. Well, um, he also didn't meet that age requirement, when he was elected, but by the time he actually took the seat, he did meet the required age of 25. So he's always sliding in there right under the radar, seems like. Yeah. And uh, he gets reelected six consecutive terms and representing Kentucky's fourth district. And then uh, in 1813, he gets one of Kentucky's at-large seats in the House. So during his time in Congress, he becomes nationally known because of his opposition to recharter the First Bank of the United States. Unlike some politicians, um, maybe back then and subsequently, uh, despite his dislike politically, 
of Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton's views on having a national bank. He still seeks to influence the Committee on Claims uh, to grant uh, Hamilton's widow a wage. Um, Hamilton, if you remember, had declined uh, receiving any wages because of his service under George Washington, but his widow needed some money. There's a little bit of compassion there. Yeah, everybody has their upside, I suppose. So the War of 1812 is coming along here, and it is nowhere more popular than in Kentucky. And Kentucky is, you, you remember there's a lot of discussion around the War of 1812 that we've had. One of the things that's very much on the minds of people is the impressment of their soldiers and the impressment of their people onto British ships. So they're very interested in this war, and especially in Kentucky, because they need the trade that goes through the port of New Orleans. Anyway, moving on, Congress declares war in June of 1812, and Johnson goes back to Kentucky to get a bunch of different volunteers. And there are so many different people that say, yes, I uh, want to volunteer for this war. I'll go fight that. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa I guess I can only take some of you. Uh, I will only take the ones of you that have horses already. So he gets 300 men and goes out with them, forms up with another battalion and becomes the colonel of that battalion. So we're going to skip a lot of the discussions and things that happened during the War of 1812 because you're already familiar with that. And of course, we always encourage you to go out and research more about things you're interested in. But the one big thing that is kind of his claim to fame uh, is that he gets credited with killing Tecumseh. And, you know, he kind of rides the coattails of his own legacy, I guess you could say, to boost himself up about killing Tecumseh. And, you know, these are reports that came in. Uh, there were certainly discussions about, well, was that actually him? Was it somebody else? Uh, but he certainly never disputed it. Can you imagine the news headlines? Like if you were to take today's media and put them back then, here you have this guy He's involved in a quote-unquote interracial relationship. He kills Tecumseh, and we don't know anything about him (laughs) today. It's like, what? But yeah, yeah. Uh, Johnson would not have been a huge fan of Congress uh, today because, especially back then, he's like, this body moves too slow. So after the War of 1812, Johnson returns to Congress. He's like, hey, congressmen should have a bump in pay because it's quite a job. And they had not had a pay increase like in 27 years. So let's do it. And he introduces legislation to give congressmen raises. And of course, it passes the House and Senate and is made law in 1816. And the voters are like, that's horrible. We do not like you anymore. So he does win the election to continue serving in Congress, but a lot of his colleagues get voted out. And two days into the next session of Congress, subsequently, he says, you know what? I don't support this law anymore. (laughs) Johnson decides that he's going to retire from the House of Representatives in 1818. Later that year, the state legislature was going to find a replacement for Senator Talbot. Uh, So Johnson's like, yeah, I'll go ahead and run for that. But he loses by 12 votes to William Logan. 
And uh, even though he had never officially declared his candidacy to run for that, he still obviously did pretty well. So that's kind of impressive. He ends his term in the House of Representatives in 1819, but then he ends up going back to the state legislature and decides to help out there for a while. December of 1819 rolls around, and he's like, okay, I'll give up the seat too. I'm going to go ahead and fill uh, the seat that John Crittenden vacated. And then he gets reelected later on in 1822 and ends up serving until 1829 in the United States Senate. So among the things that uh, Johnson involves himself with while in the Senate is the establishment of the George Washington University in D.C. And then also he takes the stance that it's a good thing for American liberty to be spread throughout the continent. So he's supportive of Manifest Destiny, and he believes that eventually uh, emancipation will happen uh, and that slavery should not be expanded. He also, uh, (laughs) this is kind of funny, Ben, I don't know if this has anything to do with politics, but he believed that the earth was hollow, and he made a proposal in the Senate that the government should fund an expedition to the center of the earth, which is kind of awesome. Yeah, it's kind of awesome, but nobody else thought it was awesome. Uh, He got only 25 votes in the House and the Senate combined. So they were all like, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Sorry, Johnson. No no big deal. In 1828, he goes up for re-election and he loses. And he ends up going back to the House, which he's like, okay, if I can't be in the Senate, I might as well go back to the House. And, uh, again, serves there in multiple different ways. Um, Later on, he's like, you know what? I think that I'm probably going to campaign to be the vice president. This seems like a great idea to me. And uh, 1836 is coming up here pretty quickly. So let's go ahead and just say, yeah, I'm going to run. So this does turn out to be one of the most interesting electoral things, especially when it comes to vice presidents in the 1800s, because let's face it, vice president is not that exciting, right? But Andy Jack, you know, our friend Andrew Jackson, he supports Johnson for being the vice president in 1836, because he's like, hey, I served with this guy in 1812. Um, Marty, um, Martin Van Buren, uh, he didn't serve in the war. So this might help because it always helps to have a war hero, right? So Jackson places a lot of faith in Johnson to balance the ticket. And in the general election, it ends up hurting Van Buren because Johnson loses a lot of votes in the South for Van Buren because of his relationship with his common law wife. So he actually ends up hurting Van Buren's chances, but when the electoral vote comes to be counted in 1837, Van Buren receives 170 votes for president, and Johnson only really only receives 147 votes. So after they realize that they don't have enough votes, the Senate is in charge of electing the vice president because of the 12th Amendment. We had an episode about that, oh man, so long ago. Pretty much everybody voted on party lines, and Johnson ends up becoming the vice president by a vote of 36. There's only 16 for the Whig side, 
uh, three of the senators were absent, so he overwhelmingly gets the votes in the Senate, at least, to become the vice president. He really didn't have much success or much to do at all when he was the vice president. Uh, president Van Buren really didn't didn't have a need for his advice or anything too often, and he really kind of you know wielded his power to make sure that things went well for him instead of making sure that they went well in general. So, uh, yeah, he didn't have a whole lot of successes as the vice president. Yeah, I get this. Um, so, you know, there's this financial panic in 1837. Johnson, <laughs> Johnson is like, see ya. <laughs> it takes a nine-month <laughs> leave of absence, which is totally legit, right, for a VP to do. Yeah, of course. Um, he goes home to Kentucky, opens a tavern and spa uh, because he's having some financial issues. He needs to raise some money. And um, Amos Kendall, he writes to President uh, Van Buren. He says that he found Johnson, quote, happy in the inglorious pursuit of tavern keeping, even giving his personal superintendence to the chicken and egg purchasing and watermelon selling department. So, <laughs> yeah, he's uh, chicken, eggs, and watermelon while uh, we're in a panic. In 1840, everybody's like, okay, Johnson you're a liability you always were you're still going to be uh we don't really know for sure that we want to have you on the ticket and andy jack is even like yeah you're dead weight dude uh i'm going for james polk sorry and uh, <laughs> president van buren is up for re-election and van buren's like you know i don't know that i want to drop johnson from the ticket he is kind of the war hero uh but Let's go ahead and I want him on the ticket, but if the De Democratic National Convention doesn't nominate him again, uh, that'd be okay. And as a matter of fact, if they didn't nominate anybody, that'd be okay with me too. So uh, Johnson is like, well, you know what? I'm still gonna make, I'm still gonna keep this office. Sorry, I don't care if you guys don't have confidence in me. Uh, I'm actually gonna campaign harder than Van Buren does, and so he goes out and. He, basically makes a bunch of rambling, incoherent speeches. Uh, at one speech, he's like, hey, back whenever I killed Tecumseh, I got shot five times. Look. And he lifts up his shirt so people can see all the wounds that he gets. And uh, people are just like, okay, this guy's this guy's crazy, I think. <laughs> yeah, maybe those uh, faithless electors from Virginia were right way back when. And uh, he shouldn't have been and national yeah. office, but, but he was, and, um, he spent the later part of his life, um, back in Kentucky, tending to his farm, overseeing his tavern. He, uh, is elected to the Kentucky house of representatives. Can you imagine this? You're vice president of the United States at a certain period. And then a few years later, you're serving in your state's house of representatives. Yeah. Not to diss the House of Representatives in Kentucky, very important, but that's quite a a demotion, I would say, yeah. for being vice president. <laughs> I uh, agree. Hey, Ben, um, several months ago, we went to Frankfurt, and we saw Daniel Boone's grave. Of course, there's the road signs everywhere. There's Daniel Boone's grave. There's Daniel Boone's grave. You don't really yep. see Richard Minter Johnson's grave um, being publicized that much, but it is there. Interestingly enough, he did serve as a pallbearer when Daniel Boone uh, was reinterred um, in Frankfurt Cemetery in 1845. Um, yeah, he's pretty much 
well, many would say that he lost his mind. Um, and in November of 1850, just two weeks into his term in the House of Representatives for Kentucky, he dies of a stroke. Jason, did we actually see his gravesite? I don't remember if we looked at it or not when we were in Frankfurt. Yeah, uh, it's pretty ornate uh, yeah. as far as graves from the 1850s go. But I do remember seeing it and thinking, hey, we should do a podcast episode about him and then forgetting about it. And then thinking, <laughs> hey, he has a really cool name. Who was this guy yeah. anyway? He was the vice president. That's right. Yeah, that's crazy. And you know what else is crazy? The amount of support you guys have shown us over the last couple of weeks, just simply with iTunes reviews. We would love it if you would head over to iTunes, whether you listen on iTunes or not, and leave us a review, a five-star review with a little you know, nice paragraph about how much we've impacted your life deeply and uh, made you want to name your children after us. That would be a great review. But if you chose not to leave that kind of review, we would understand that as well. Uh, head over to iTunes, leave us that review, and it really helps the show out, helps boost us up in the ratings as well. Yeah, and there are some costs that are involved in putting this podcast together, and you can help offset some of those costs by supporting us on Patreon. For as little as 11 cents an episode, you can do just that. Head over to electioncollege.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you can give us a little financial love there. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.